Thank you, Misty Mountain String Band. And uh, remember tonight, 5.15. It's uh, fun. Brian and I met, I guess back in 1998, we both served as student ambassadors for the same seminary. And uh, he has the opportunity to be one of their New Testament professors here. And I'm preaching on a controversial passage in the New Testament today. If I would have known he was, he was going to be here, I'd have preached something easy. <laughs> so leave that red pen, Brian. Hey, have you, ever, have you ever been in a situation where you've gotten into trouble? This is yes, this is no. And uh, husbands, let's pick on you here for a little bit. Husbands, have you ever gotten in trouble? And let's make it, um, let's make it domestic trouble. And you didn't do anything wrong, okay? Guys, we don't, we don't do things wrong. We don't ever mess up like that. But you start trying to explain what it is that you did, and everything that you do that in your mind is so clear is just digging a hole. And everything you do doesn't do anything but get you more in trouble. You've been there? Please tell me I'm not the only one. You know, it, it's, it's a problem. Thank you, Henry. I see that hand. <clears throat> we'll have an invitation here at the end of the service. You can come right down, and I'll be there with you, brother. Um, it's kind of like Pastor Reed's fantasy football team. No matter what he did, dead last. Hey, listen, uh, what's the Bible say? There's many parts in the body of Christ, so somebody's got to be the backside, so that worked. Um, it's wonderful. It's kind of like, perhaps, what we'll see this morning in the life of Jesus. He's a loved folk hero. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 12... Uh, there are issues where he is running into the establishment. And it's almost like Jesus is the older brother having an annoying younger sibling who follows him around, tattling on everything that he does. And that younger sibling is the Pharisees. Uh, Now that Jesus has kind of proverbially crossed swords with the Pharisees, they are not going to let the issue die until he is dead. And so uh, there's conflict. And it doesn't matter what Jesus does. Everything he does is controversial. Jesus is just doing what Jesus does best. Preaching, teaching, healing. And last week we saw as the controversy began to grow, Jesus challenged all of the visible institutions that the Jewish religious leaders held so dear. He said, you don't get the Sabbath right. So your temple worship is messed up. And on top of that, you don't even know the scriptures. Today, in the story that we see, not only is Jesus challenging physical institutions that we saw last week, but in our incident today, he challenges the spirit world and the invisible structures that we don't see. Jesus was the Messiah that they had longed for and waited with such great anticipation, and yet he shows up, and their rejection becomes complete this morning. So we'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 12 beginning in verse 22, that should be page 726 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. But page 726 should put you in Matthew chapter 12. And it all starts with an incredible demonstration of power and authority. An incredible demonstration of power and authority. Listen to how God's Word records this, beginning in verse 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, perhaps this is the son of David. Now this man was a triple threat in a number of ways. 
He was A, demon-possessed, B, blind, and C, mute. He's got three really terrible problems. Any one of those problems would have been a soul-crushing defeat, meaning you're an outcast from society and uh, there are just things socially that are shut off to you. Well, he doesn't just have one problem. He's got three. And, of course, we know that the first problem, the demon possession, is what most ultimately led to the other physical maladies that he had. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Jesus heals the man. It says, they brought him, he healed him. And the story is told with great economy of words. It's one sentence, basically. Because the issue this morning is not so much the miracle, but the controversy that followed thereafter. And so uh, he tells the story quickly and moves on. We're told in Mark's gospel that when Jesus did the healing, he did it with a word. Very little effort on Jesus' part. And with one word, Jesus demonstrates power over both physical disease and also over the spirit world and the demonic. He says, be gone, and the demon's gone, and the illnesses flee. That's an amazing thing. And it generates a significant amount of conversation. It is all the people that saw it in verse 23. All the crowds were astounded, and they said, perhaps this is the son of David. You see, that's a genuine question. He claimed to be the son of David. He claimed to be the son of God. They doubted him. Because their expectation for a Messiah was going to be a warrior liberator, not a gentle healer. But who has the power to do these things? So when they see it firsthand, they go, huh, I wonder if this is him. And their amazement indicates that there might be other people that cast out demons, that got some other tricks up their sleeve, but the way Jesus does it is unprecedented. Jesus does it with a word. He doesn't need a prescription. He doesn't need an incantation. He doesn't need a mantra. He doesn't have a 1-800 psychic number to call. He just does it and the demons are gone. And so there is a problem. And of course the Pharisees hear the word on the street. They hear the crowd that's speaking with amazement. And so they have to deal with this because they don't like Jesus. And so verse 26, when the Pharisees heard this, the crowd speaking, could this be the son of David? They said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the power, uh, the ruler of the demons. What do they say? Ain't nothing special about Jesus. He's just another garden variety sorcerer. He's tapping into occult power. That's how he has power over the demons. And you know, if the demons listen to him, he has authority. So he's not just a demon. He's the Lord of the demons. He is the devil himself. Wow, man, that's pretty interesting here. Three verses into this story, and we see the controversy that is happening. Last week, it was the Sabbath controversy. Today, it is the spirit controversy. And so Jesus says, guys, that accusation is 100% absurd. And he gives us two reasons why he says that it is absurd. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, it's an absurd accusation. Because it is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Evidently, they were not standing by Jesus, but they were having this conversation with other people saying, he casts out demons because he's Beelzebub. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I love the way John Broaddus, New Testament scholar, 
uh, refers to this. He said if Satan casts out demons, he would virtually be casting himself out since they do his bidding. What kind of sense does that make? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Why would Satan undermine his very own work? Why would he seek to undo the destruction that he is seeking to cause? That kind of internal conflict would destroy any foundation of work that he is trying to do. But Jesus says it's not only illogical. Look at verse 27. You see, Jesus isn't the only game in town when it comes to exorcism. So he says, not only is your absurd accusation illogical, verse 27, it is prejudiced. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, who is it that your sons drive them out by? For this reason, they will be your judges. Now, he doesn't literally mean flesh and blood like your children. He just means disciples. So you have elderly Pharisees who have a younger cohort of people that are going to replace them. And so they are training the next generation. And so when Jesus says your sons, he doesn't mean your progeny. He means your spiritual progeny, your leadership progeny. Who are you passing the baton to? He says, all right, here, here's a question. If um, you don't like exorcisms, and I've done it, and you accuse me of doing it by satanic power, just riddle me this. What kind of power do your boys tap into? Do you, do you apply the same level of scrutiny to their works as you do to mine? And so if this accusation is both illogical and prejudiced, and the power that, that Jesus exercises to cast out these demons is not the power of Satan, it begs the question, where does the power and the authority come from? Well, Jesus answers that with three assertions beginning in verse 28. He says this, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus says this very simply, if the power is not satanic, can it be the power of God? What Jesus is saying here is that he is in the process of bringing God's kingdom. This whole sermon series that we are in in Matthew is entitled King and Kingdom. And Jesus is saying here, by the very fact of the demonstration of my power and authority, by casting out this demon, I am showing you that the kingdom of God is here. There's definitely some sense of arrival. Jesus says it. Surprise, kingdom of God. And we ask ourselves the question, has the kingdom of God really come? I mean, we see death and sickness, illness. We see uh, negative influences. And we understand that while we might not see a demon behind every rock, we fully understand that there is an army of um, spiritual badness seeking to undo what God seeks to do. So how can Jesus say that the kingdom has come? Well, it's this. <clears throat> Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but he hasn't consummated the kingdom. You know, just like if you find a snake in your yard and you chop its head off. Sorry, Tom Harden. What's that snake going to do? He's still going to writhe and wriggle around. He's dead, but there's still activity. When Jesus brings in the kingdom of God and starts, it doesn't complete it. The devil is defeated. He's not done wiggling around. And that's what we have to do with. Jesus may indeed be a gentle healer, but here he's a king, and he's exercising his power and authority and demonstrating it in the healing of this man. 
In verse 29, he basically says this, that this action that he is engaged in proves that someone stronger than Satan is here. Look what he says in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? But then he can rob his house. Jesus says, hey, is there another way to think of this than saying that I'm the devil? He says, I'm not in cahoots with the devil. As a matter of fact, I'm his enemy. And I'm here to plunder his house. And through the act of demon possession, Jesus is basically saying that that man as demon possessed now belongs to Satan. He is one of Satan's possessions. And Jesus says, I'm just going to walk right in his door, tie him up, and take him. That's what he does for us. It's called redemption. You don't just redeem coupons. Jesus redeems souls. He buys us back for him. And he says, if that's Satan's possession and he loves it and he wants to keep it, how do you take something that he loves against his will? Well, you've got to be stronger than him. I don't know if any of you know who Jack Handy is. He is a philosopher on Saturday Night Live. And he says, it takes a big man to cry, but it takes an even bigger man to laugh at that man. And so um, the point that he's making here, <laughs> sorry, that was not in the notes. Um, the point here <laughs> is that If somebody's going to take from Satan something that is his dear possession, you've got to be stronger than the man you want to take something from. And Jesus says, I can do it. My action in rescuing this man proves that someone stronger than Satan is here. Now listen, we know this. This is going to drive me crazy. Sorry, I'm a little OCD. We know the story. Uh, Jesus gets inaugurated, gets christened for ministry in his baptism. And immediately after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness to prepare himself for his ministry. And what happens immediately when he goes into the wilderness? It says that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and then what happens? The devil comes to him. Why? Because if the devil can distract him and head him off at the past, then he will never have to fight with him later. He says, let's just ruin his ministry early on, and then it's done. But Satan was incapable of distracting him from his mission of announcing the kingdom of God. Now, all throughout Jesus' ministry, there's demon-possessed men popping up all over the place. There's all kinds of just really scary things that are happening. I I have never been around a demon-possessed person. I believe that it's true. I have been in areas where, right international missions, where right prior to my coming, uh, there has been something that has happened, and I can see the palpable fear on people's faces and encountering that kind of stuff. And Jesus runs up against these demon-possessed men and they all basically grovel at his feet and say, "Don't, Jesus, don't mess with us. Please don't hurt us. And they cannot keep him from speaking, from proclaiming, from healing, and from teaching. Because Jesus is stronger. Jesus' third and final assertion under this point in verse 30 is that... Uh, He does have the power of God. He is stronger than Satan. And that we must choose if we are with him. We must choose. You must choose if you are with Jesus. Verse 30. Anyone who is not, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Guys, listen. I don't know that Jesus could make a clearer statement. He says, there can be no neutrality with Jesus. And yet we think 
We vote for Jesus once every four years. You know, Jesus for president. How many of you think that's a good idea? All in favor, raise your hand. Bada, boom, bada. And we're done with Jesus for the next four years until another election rolls around. You cannot be related to Jesus the way that you're related to the president of the United States. You don't, you don't just think about it once every four years. Because you can't be neutral. And if you are indifferent or apathetic to the person of Christ, you are opposed to him. You may never picket Jesus. You may never sign a, 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 a statement against him. But the Bible says if you are indifferent, if you're apathetic, if you're just ho-hum, you're against him. And so, listen, I could put an exclamation point here and say, if there's anything you need to hear this morning, it's this, you cannot be neutral. You are either for him and you are, or you are against him. And I want to say this, with as much gentleness and love as possible this morning. My, my kids call me the screaming preacher. I'm glad you laughed. Uh, if that was stone cold silent, I would be in big trouble. But let me say this with as much love as I can muster. If you don't know if you're for him, I think Jesus would say that's a pretty clear warning that you're not. You're indifferent or apathetic. That's neutrality. And Jesus says there can be no neutrality. You want to know how you're not neutral? He gives us a clarifying word in verse 30. He says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Guys, it's not enough to just be on Jesus' side. We have to be gatherers with him. Because the only other option of not being a gatherer for him is being a scatterer against him. So I just ask the question. Have you gathered this week? Because if you have not gathered, you have scattered. It's a terrible question to ask. If you looked at your neighbor and you asked them, who is closer to Jesus? Because they are close to you. How short would that conversation be? No neutrality. And your neutrality is proven by being a part of building the kingdom of God that our king came to bring. Well, Jesus goes on, and he warns us to be very careful about what we say. And the remainder of our passage this morning is really talking about getting in trouble with our mouths. And we'll come to a, a super controversial uh, question this morning about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it can't be forgiven. And so we're going to look very carefully at what the Scriptures say this morning because Jesus says two things that kind of sound kind of strange for us. And so we have to put the puzzle pieces together kind of carefully this morning. Let me give you a couple fill-in-the-blanks so that you can listen and not have to worry about catching those. First, Jesus says that God's mercy is wide. It's wide. And that sin against the Son is forgivable. Jesus says that God's mercy is wide and that sin against the capital S Son is forgivable. But then he turns around and says God's justice is severe and sin against the Spirit is not. Look at verses 31 and 32 with me. He says, because of this, clearly referring back in verse 30, to the whole with me, against me, the whole neutrality thing. Because you can't be neutral, 
Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. God's mercy is wide. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or ever in the age to come. Now, there's a lot of opinions about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. So let me help you here a little bit. It is not murder. And I see you all going, all you murderers. Technically, I guess you could say that Jesus would say, if you've ever hated or said something mean to them, you've murdered them. So we probably have a few more murderers here than we would like to admit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not murder. It's not adultery. Perhaps the most popular conclusion is that it's suicide. It's not that. When we deal with a thorny issue like this, the best way for us to do this is to try to clear our minds and actually see what the evidence says, to interpret it in its context, to see what does the passage say. And it doesn't say anything about murder, doesn't say anything about adultery, doesn't say anything about suicide. There's a distinction that's drawn in reference to sin against the Son versus sin against the Spirit. That sounds strange to me. So we can say bad things about Jesus and be forgiven, but if we say bad things about the Holy Spirit, we're not forgiven? What in the world is that all about? What is blasphemy? The easiest two-word definition of blasphemy is extreme slander. Extreme slander. And he defines it for us in verse, uh, is it 31? He says, whoever speaks against the Son of Man, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, that's extreme slander. Speaking against. So you are speaking against the Son, you are speaking against the Spirit, and speaking against the Spirit is not forgivable. Now we know, all of us, that it doesn't matter what degree, what kind, or what volume of sin you have, you can be forgiven. You can actually be forgiven for rejecting Christ. And Peter denied that he knew him. Cursed. I tell you, I don't know the man. God forgave him. Paul. Just to name two examples, was a persecutor of the church. Hated Christ. God forgave him. So what in the world are we talking about when we say that there is a sin that is not forgivable? Well, I think it's clear when we see the speaking against that happens in this context. Jesus heals a man. And the Pharisees attribute what what Jesus has done by the power of God to the power of Satan. It's very clear what's happening here. And so I think there are three conditions that really have to be met for this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to happen. And let me me say this. Anytime I have ever spoken on this topic, there is always a sensitive soul that comes up to me worried, and they say, "Um, I have done something in my past, and I am wondering, can you tell me, have I committed the unpardonable sin? The thing that's awesome about that question is if you ask it, you haven't committed it. If you've committed it, you don't give a rip. If your heart is sensitive about obedience to the Lord and being concerned about honoring Him, you know what the one thing we can rule out is? You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. So what are the conditions that have to happen for the unpardonable sin, I think, to happen? I think just looking at the example that we have this morning, there's a couple things that that we see. Number one, it's got to be willful. It's got to be willful. When you look at what the Pharisees did, they didn't do it because there was no evidence. Uh, All right, people are getting healed. (laughs) 
Diseases are going away. Demons are being cast out. There's really not a lot of options on how you choose to interpret those situations. Either Jesus is a huckster, you know, and the people weren't really sick, and he's in cahoots, and it's all a big show. Either he is powered and motivated by the power of Satan, or he is powered by the power of God. I mean, I'm not the sharpest arrow in the quiver, but I don't think that there are more options than that. And people know that this man has been demon-possessed because he was here a long time before Jesus was. They know his mom and his dad. They live in community with him. They don't deny that a miracle has taken place. That's never in question in the New Testament. The question is, where's the power come from? And so it's, they make a willful rejection of Jesus despite the evidence. They saw the miracles. Their response to Jesus was both thoughtful deliberate and intentional. They don't even think about other options. They just jump to the, he's Satan. Not the answer you want to jump to. Number two, it needs to be persistent. One of the things that happens with the Pharisees, this is not the first time this has happened. Matter of fact, if you flip back in your Bible, just a couple pages to Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, Jesus has just healed another demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees go, oh, he did it because he's the ruler of the demons. They're a one-hit wonder, and they're going to stick with it. They're going to say, hey, yeah, it didn't take in chapter 9. Let's repeat it again in chapter 12, and maybe if we say it louder with more bluster, people will believe us this time. Their rejection is persistent. And listen, this is true. No one, no one can be saved who pridefully and persistently rejects the Spirit of God. Can they? You're not going to be saved against your will. It's not going to happen. And so to see this kind of persistent rejection, this unwillingness to repent, shows a persistence. Guys, here's the issue. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act. You don't wake up and go, oh my goodness, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It's not a careless act. It's a hardened state. Where your heart just becomes harder and harder and you resist and you resist. The bad news is that there will come a point where you resist so much That it's not just willful. It's not just persistent. It is permanent. Got to give you what you want. You don't want Jesus, you'll get it. And so complete refusal leads to complete condemnation. Willfulness plus persistence equals permanent. So it seems best for us to conclude this morning that speaking against the Son which is forgivable, is a naive rejection of Jesus. That's a good word. You know why? Because there's a lot of people out there who are confused about who Jesus is. You believe Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, I don't know. He's a good guy. Didn't he, like, tell some stories? That's not belief. But that's not willful and persistent rejection have conversations with people regularly about what do they believe about Jesus. Inside and outside the church, you don't know if you're going to get the right answer. You know, is Jesus fully God? I don't know about fully God, maybe mostly God? No, 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 we need to work on that. But you know what? There's something to work with at that point. Somebody says, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. That's a problem. And so blasphemy against the Spirit, what makes it different is, guys, listen, 
The Spirit and the Son are in cahoots together. They work together. The Spirit's whole job is to open our hearts to receive the Son. So when we talk about rejection of the Son, I think that's naive rejection of who Jesus is that is teachable. We can work with that. But rejection of the Spirit is intentionally um, attributing what God is doing to a um, maleficent action, attributing God's work to Satan, intentionally, willfully, deliberately, with the intention to also deter other people from putting their faith in Christ. Because what's, what's the Pharisees' endgame in all this? In Matthew chapter 12, it's one year before Jesus will be crucified. I mean, Jesus is not in imminent danger of dying. But if they can assassinate his character and ruin his ministry now, they're glad to do it. They may kill him figuratively now by sullying his name and his reputation, and they'll get around to killing his body whenever they get the opportunity. And so even after the evidence, they show this stubborn refusal to even consider repenting. Now, one of the things that I think is certainly true, I think that the blasphemy, blasphemy of the Spirit is a definite and particular thing. Let's zoom out here, big picture for a second. Jesus is warning about being careful about what we say and about blasphemy of the Holy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is no different than any warning that Jesus ever gives is that rejection of the Son is rewarded with condemnation. That's it. Now, I think the blasphemy of the Spirit is a particular subset of that, but rejection of the Son will not get you anything good. It will get you condemnation. And so the good news this morning, for perhaps our sensitive souls that have wondered if you've crossed the line in your sin, is that blasphemy is more an issue of the heart than it is a slip of the lip. You don't go, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I did it. No, it doesn't happen. There's a willfulness and there's a persistence here. And so Jesus concludes by giving us some important words of continued warning. And we'll just make a few comments on this, verses 33 through 37. <clears throat> he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the, listen to this, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, but an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." Guys, listen, saying good words about Jesus, saying biblical words about Jesus doesn't sprout from a New Year's resolution. It sprouts from a heart. And Jesus is saying you're going to give account for every careless word, not that you say to your spouse, but that you say in testimony about who Jesus is. Where that comes from is internal. Our doing comes from our being. Our fruit comes from our root. Our words come from our heart. And Jesus says, be careful what you say, because your words will be outward evidence of your inward testimony. Now, I seriously doubt that there's anyone here this morning that we have turned back from the precipice of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I hope that this has been educational and that you've learned some things that perhaps you have been curious about, about New Testament teaching. But I think there is a danger here in these walls that is not 
blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and it's apathy and indifference. So friends, this year, what will you do to prove that you're not neutral? It's not enough for us to walk away from a worship service and go, praise Jesus, I have not committed the blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I probably never will. Woohoo! Is that a goal? Listen, thank God for His preserving grace, but wouldn't it be far better to not just go, thank God I've never committed this sin, to saying, I am so much on board with the kingdom of God, I'm going to do everything I can to work to help it grow. I'm going to be a gatherer. I'm going to help the people that are close to me be closer to Jesus. So next week, who can you bring with you? Next time your Sunday school class has a social, who can you invite? Maybe worship would be intimidating for your neighbor, your friend, your coworker. Maybe a skeet shoot with the guys would be a little bit easier. Maybe a Super Bowl party would be right up their alley. Ladies, maybe going for a cup of coffee at Starbucks would be a nice way to kind of get them introduced. What are you doing to gather and not scatter? Maybe you are a little more of an inward personality. You're a, little, you're a quiet type. You know, just being, being outgoing is just not, that's not your thing. But you still have friends that you have a responsibility to bring closer to Jesus. Isn't it strange that God puts us in a spiritual family with all kinds of different personalities and gifts? Is there someone that you know that's more outgoing than you that might be able to do the work that you don't feel like you're capable of? And you guys might be able to partner together for the glory of God and the salvation of your friend? If you can't do it, for God's sake, partner up with someone else who will. Because that's our challenge, friends, this morning. Not just staying away from the danger of blasphemy, but actually doing something that proves that we're on God's side. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for this word. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded of our responsibilities, not to just be consumers of your blessings, but God, to be responsible citizens of your kingdom. And God, our responsibility as kingdom citizens goes far beyond making a vote every four years. Wow, way to go, kingdom citizen. You've worked hard. God, may it be our ambition to have it said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. May we make the best use of the resources you have given us, your word, your spirit, your people, that we might see people closer to you through us. Because God, we are your plan. You have already been here in the flesh, and the next time you come back in the flesh, it will be too late for people to repent. So this morning, fan our hearts into a flame of passion for seeing people come to you that we might prove our love and our devotion to our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.